Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, February 10th, 2022. Before we begin, I want to mention just a bit of housekeeping, and that is I have the great pleasure to be with you tonight, and a week from tonight, with God's help, we'll be together. But then, February 24, we will be on vacation, and March 3rd, we will be on vacation, and we will resume on March 10th. So we're meeting next week, taking off two weeks, and then resuming on March 10th. For the 10 at 9, we're going to keep going all this coming week, but from Sunday, February 20th, through Friday, March 4th, we will be on vacation, and we will resume the 10 at 9 in the morning on Sunday, March 6th. I just want to mention that I now send out a daily email that has in one easy to access place the words of Torah that I share that day plus what I shared the year before. I send that out every day, Sunday through Friday. And first of all, if you'd like to receive that, just send me an email. I'd be happy to add you to the list. But if you don't get it, check your junk file because I'm sending it. You just have to check. However, I will continue sending those emails during the time that I'm away. So if you sign up for that email, you will still get an email every day with the previous year's uh, Divrei Torah in that email. So if you're interested in that email, let me know. I'll be happy to sign you up. A man called his rabbi and he said, Rabbi, I have a daughter and she's looking for a shidduch. We're trying to find a match for my daughter, someone who's really special because my daughter is a really special girl. And the rabbi says to this man, I know just the boy. He's a scholar. He's a mensch. They're made for each other. The man says, okay. The couple goes out on their first date. And the next day, the girl's father calls his rabbi and says, what did you do to my daughter? He's not a mensch. Why would you have suggested such a person to go out with my daughter? The rabbi is shocked. And he asks the man, what happened? So the girl's father tells the rabbi the following story. He says, my daughter asked this young man, so uh, where do your parents live? And he answered, what's it your business? She said to him, do you have any brothers or sisters? He said to her, who cares? She said to him, what are you thinking of doing for a career? And he said to her, what difference does it make? And Rabbi, that's the person you thought was so appropriate for my daughter? Someone you call a mensch would talk like that? The rabbi says, Ay vey, it's all my fault. It's my fault. I have to tell you what happened. 
this young man, he was very nervous. It was his first date. He was nervous to go out with your daughter. And so he came to me and he said to me, what should I do? What should I say? I've never been on a date with a girl before. And the rabbi said to him, listen, young man, relax. Just talk to her the way your parents talk to each other. This Monday is Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is not a Jewish holiday. We do not celebrate Valentine's Day. But I will use any excuse to try to enhance the love between husband and wife. Especially now, when for so many of us, there is even more pressure from everything that we're going through. So many challenges to shalom bias, to true harmony within the home and respect and love for each other within the home. It's so difficult these days. So permit me to share with you briefly this insight from the subject of these Torah portions that we're studying now about the Mishkan, the building of the sanctuary God commanded the Jewish people to build that would move with them as they traveled through the desert. And eventually that became the Beis HaMikdash, the first temple in Jerusalem. The Torah describes the Aron, the Ark. God commanded the Jewish people to build this ark. It was like a box. Inside the ark would be placed the luchos, the two tablets of stone on which were engraved the Aseris Hadibros, the Ten Commandments. On top of the ark was a cover called the kaporis, like a lid. And this cover, this lid, had a flat base and rising up from the base, the Torah tells us, make two cherubs, like figures of angels. Parse lamala, each of them would have their wings extended upwards. Sochachim bekanfehem alakaporis, and their wings would form like a sukkah, like a covering, sochachim, like a chuppah, like a covering over the ark. And this created a very small sheltered space above the ark, but below the wings and under the cherub's outstretched wings, the Torah says, God says, I will make myself known to you there. And I will speak to you from that lid, from that base. From between the two cherubs, this space that is defined by the ark underneath 
and the wings of the cherubs that come to meet at the top, this open space, that is the holiest spot in the world. That is the spot where God will, so to speak, make himself known to us, speak to us from that spot, the holiest place in the world, the focal point of the Mishkan, that's in the part that we call the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, the focal point of the Jewish people, the focal point of all of Judaism. Our rabbis tell us that these kruvim, these cherubs, looked like an angel with wings spread up to form a canopy. One of them, the face, had the appearance of a man, and the other one had a face with the appearance of a woman. And from the space between their outstretched wings, God's presence emanated. This may be the source of the famous statement in the Talmud, Ish Isha, husband and wife, who live together with true shalom bias, harmony within the home, where they respect each other and they love each other and they care for each other selflessly when there is true shalom bias, harmony within the home. Shechina shruya beinehem, God's presence dwells between them. Maybe that is a representation of God emanating from between the outstretched wings of these two cherubs, the man and the woman. Which indicates, by the way, to us that proper romantic love between husband and wife is not only physical, it's not only emotional, it's also spiritual. It summons God's presence. But now a question arises. Because... The Torah tells us, Upnehem ish el achiv. Their faces, the man and the woman, were facing each other. Well, that makes sense. It's an expression, after all, of romantic love between a husband and wife. Of course, they're gazing lovingly in each other's eyes. The question is that that description is contradicted by another verse. Another Pusik. This occurs later in Divrei Hayamim, the book of Chronicles, where the Torah says that these two cherubs, these two kruvim were standing facing the same direction, Shoulder to shoulder. Well, which is it? Were they facing each other? Or were they facing the same direction, shoulder to shoulder? So the Talmud asks this question. And the Talmud says, it depends. It depends what was going on. Sometimes it was one way and sometimes it was the other way because the position of their faces mirrored 
the quality of the relationship between them at that moment. And here's what the Talmud says. Kan bismanchi Yisrael osim shalmakam. One verse is talking about where the Jewish people are acting correctly, doing the right thing. Kan bismanchi en Yisrael osim shalmakam. And the other verse is discussing a situation, a time where people are not acting properly, where they're not giving respect to each other. Okay. So the simple explanation of that, which I think is intuitive, I'm, I assume you understand this the same way as I do. When everything is good, when everything is fine, then they're facing each other in love, adoring each other with affection, with romance. When things are not so good, the relationship is a little bit chilly, the couple is not facing each other anymore. They're facing the same direction. They're standing shoulder to shoulder, not facing each other. That's the simple way to understand it. But allow me to share with you the insight of Rabbi J.J. Schachter, who offers a different view which expresses a deep truth about love in marriage. A married couple facing each other is important. It's good. Romance, attraction, the pleasure that each gives the other, those are very important things. But if that is the totality of the relationship, it's doomed. Because eventually, a couple facing each other will find fault with the other. The secret of a happy marriage is when a couple can also stand shoulder to shoulder facing the same direction, focused on a shared mission, a shared goal in their lives. Now, it doesn't matter what that mission is. As long as it is something that is important, something that elicits their better selves, and something that reaches beyond the two of them. Rabbi Yosef Grunblatt put this so eloquently and so wisely when he said, the key to togetherness is beyondness. When husband and wife are shoulder to shoulder, focused on what they will accomplish together, what is beyond just the two of them, whatever those goals are, they will have the connection that will overcome any minor faults or disagreements that will inevitably find with each other. 
And it's a good idea. Every once in a while. Maybe on an anniversary. Maybe tonight. Maybe even on Valentine's Day. It's a good idea for a couple to review and to renew their sense of shared mission with each other. <clears throat> you may have heard this insight into this week's Torah portion. It's actually based on the Zohar, which is the main work of Kabbalah Jewish mysticism, which points out that in our Parsha, uh, this Shabbos, the Parsha Tetzaveh, Moshe's name is not mentioned. And the Zohar says that the reason for it is because of what Moshe says in next week's Torah portion. In next week's Torah portion, Kisisa, we have the terrible debacle of the Egel Azahav, the golden calf. Just 40 days after God reveals himself at Mount Sinai to the entire Jewish people and says to them, among other things, do not make any graven images, 40 days later, they build a golden calf and God is very, very upset. And God says, that's it. I'm finished with these people. Moshe goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to beg God for forgiveness. To give the Jewish people another chance. And God says to Moshe, no, I'm going to wipe them out. And I'm starting over fresh. And Moshe says to God, master of the universe, if that's what you're going to do, wipe me out as well. I don't want to survive if you're going to wipe out the entire Jewish people. I don't want you to start over with me. I stand with my people. Listen, God says he's going to do something. You don't really argue, I guess. And Moshe apparently was somewhat cavalier. Remove me from your book, Moshe says to God. Eventually, God relents and does forgive the Jewish people. But God didn't forget what Moshe said. Take me out of your book. Remove me from your Torah. And God is a little perturbed that Moshe would so glibly say that. And so God says to Moshe, I'm going to forgive the Jewish people. I'm not going to erase you completely from my book, but I am going to erase you completely from one portion. Our Parsha, Tetzaveh, Moshe's name is not found. That's kind of a well-known teaching. You may have heard of that before. But listen, please, to the analysis of Rabbi Gedalia Shor, a great scholar of the previous century, 
who starts with the following question. It's hard to believe that God would hold Moshe accountable, would punish him for saying, listen, God, if you're going to take, if you're going to wipe out the Jewish people, take me out of your book. I don't want to survive if you're not going to forgive the Jewish people. That sounds pretty selfless. That sounds pretty altruistic. You mean to say that God was upset with Moshe for acting in such a selfless manner, for being willing to sacrifice himself if his people were going to be wiped out? <clears throat> Does that sound like he did something wrong that God should respond in a punitive manner. Ha ha, I'm going to take your name out of the portion. And the truth is, Moshe is not absent from our Torah portion this week. The very beginning, the, the parsha begins, You should now command the children of Israel in the workings of the Mishkan. Who's God talking to? Who's the you? The you is Moshe. God is speaking to Moshe and addresses him, you, you. You command the Jewish people these commandments I want them to hear. So Moshe's name, Mem, Shin, Hey, Moshe's name is not in the portion, but Moshe is, is, is a character he's being referred to when God says, Viata, you, like I'm speaking to you, you, you. And listen carefully to what Rabbi Shor says. The name of a person expresses their identity in how they present themselves to others. The way I am known to you is by my name. My name is Michael. That's how I am known to you. It is, in a certain sense, the facade that I present to the world. You know me by my name. I know you by your name. But Rabbi Shor explains a name is also a mechitza, a barrier. It differentiates you from me. I'm named Michael. You're not named Michael. And if you think about this just in human terms, it's very common that in an exceptionally close relationship, Let's say, for example, a couple, a husband and wife, who are closely bound together in love and intimacy. Very often, they will not call each other by their names. They may have some term of endearment, some nickname. Honey, sweetheart, my love. To use the name is, in a certain sense, a bit more formal. It's a bit removed.
the opening of our Torah portion. When the, when the Torah writes, Ve'ata, God says, you, referring to Moshe, but not using his name, you, is the greatest reward, not a punishment, the greatest reward for Moshe's defending the Jewish people. Because Moshe said, If you're going to wipe out this people, wipe my name from your book. I give myself up. I do not want to exist if my people will not survive. That act of selflessness, that act of willingness to sacrifice himself for his people, earned for Moshe to be above a name, beyond a name closer to God than to be called by his name. Because the most profound intimacy is when no name is needed. Now the truth is we can strive for this with God to not be external with a barrier between us and God, but rather to be intrinsically connected. I'll just speak for myself. I'm not sure that I am capable of that. I'm not sure that that's realistic for me. Maybe for you. I don't see it for me. But I can try to borrow it when I speak with other people, or rather, when I listen to others. So there's an experience that I sometimes have. You may have a similar experience, but it's kind of connected to my job. Sometimes I get a call. And the first question I am asked is, do you know who this is that is calling? Does my name appear on your caller ID? Or am I able to remain anonymous in this phone call? That happens not infrequently to me. I'll get such a call. I tell them the truth, whatever, whatever the truth is. And then they may say to me, is it okay if... We speak, but I don't give you my name. And I always say, sure, yes, it's okay. Because clearly, it's a person who is distraught, a person who is worried, who is maybe ashamed of something. And I don't want to add to that because I only want to help if somebody calls. I want to help. But it is harder for me to have such a conversation, to listen to such a person, not to be able to put a face to the voice that I'm hearing, not even to be able to put a name together with the voice that I'm hearing. And at the same time, I have to be aware I could be tricked. My words could be recorded and taken out of context. But when this happens, I listen. And when I do, it is a rare experience. Because 
I connect just to the voice, just to the person's essence, not their name or whatever in my mind I might associate with that name. Bailey Newman writes, the job of the listener is to see the infinite in everyone. And in that moment, all I can do is to facilitate a moment of authenticity. To see the infinite within them and to fully embrace the totality of their being without any barriers, without any separation. Martin Buber writes, in such a case, our I, that is our truest self, feels responsible for and called upon by the you before us. There can be no expectations of gain, no anticipatory purpose, no greed, no judgment, no multiplicity, just the electricity of God surging between us. Our Parsha Tetzaveh is the portion in the Torah that embodies not the name of Moshe, but the you of Moshe. Moshe's totally transcendent essence without any barriers or separation. And reading this reminds us that we too have a you, a part of us that is untouchable, unnameable, that is embraceable, even if not fully comprehensible. That's the part of us to whom God is always speaking. We should try to reach that with God. and more realistically with each other. <clears throat> so allow me to share with you a familiar story with a new interpretation by Bailey Newman. Our Torah portion, before we get to the story, our Torah portion mainly concerns itself with the garments that were worn by the Kohen, the priests who officiated in the Mishkan and later in the Beis Dush. There was a Kohen, a regular Kohen, and there was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. A regular Kohen wore four garments, pants, a shirt, a belt, and a turban. A hat, four garments. The Kohen Gadol wore the same four garments plus four more. A Choshen, 
a breastplate with precious stones on it, an aphod that was kind of like an apron, a meal, a long cloak that went down to the ground, and a tzitz. The tzitz was a piece of silver that was worn on the forehead, and it was tied with a string at the back of the head. And on this piece of silver was engraved the words, Kodesh Lashem, holy to God. Those are the garments. Four for a regular Kohen, eight for the Kohen Gadol. What's missing? Shoes? There are no shoes? The Kohen Gadol with these special garments, they're so, they're splendorous, they're colorful, they're magnificent, they're bejeweled, gold and silver threads. And he had to walk barefoot. And the Torah itself refers to these garments, lechavod ulisif ares. We referred to these words earlier this week. The, the honor and the splendor of these garments. Barefoot? You remember we have encountered a significant incident of being barefoot before at the burning bush. When Moshe approaches this burning bush at the beginning of the book of Shemos, and God said to Moshe, Vayomer, God said, Al tikrav halom, don't come any closer. Shal nalecha raglecha, take your shoes off of your feet. Ki hamakom omeid, because the place where you are standing right now, Admas Kodeshi, it is holy ground. Now that's kind of strange. What is it about holiness that requires being barefoot? What's the connection there? So here's the story. I'm sure you've heard this story. There was once a stone cutter and he was dissatisfied with his life. What a useless job I have. What a lowly station I possess. I just cut stones all day long. One day, he saw something marvelous passing in front of him. He saw a king dressed in gold and purple, being carried in a chair with attendants. And he thought to himself, how powerful is that king? If only I were a king. And to his great surprise, poof, he was the king. He's being carried everywhere in this regal chair. People are bowing down to him. They're praising him. They're applauding him. But after a while, it starts to get kind of hot sitting in that chair. And the sun is beating down on him. 
and he looks up at the sun and he thinks to himself, wow, the power that the sun has. It's even stronger than the presence of the king. If only I were the sun. And to his great surprise, poof, he became the sun. And he cast his rays with fierceness and fields would burn and farms would get scorched. But then all of a sudden, a black storm cloud moved in and it blocked his rays from the world. So he didn't have any impact on the world anymore because of this storm. And he thought to himself how powerful this storm is that it can block the sun. If only I were a storm cloud. And to his great surprise, poof, he was a storm cloud. He was flooding the streets. He was ruining people's plans. But suddenly, he felt himself being pushed by a great force, and he realized it was the wind. And then he thought to himself, the wind is even more powerful than the storm. It's pushing the storm away. If only I were the wind. And to his great surprise, poof, he was the wind, blowing the roof off of homes, uprooting trees. But suddenly, he came up against something that would not budge. And no matter how hard he blew his wind, he could not move this huge stone in front of him. And he thought to himself, how powerful is this stone? If only I was that stone. And to his surprise, poof, he was that stone. More powerful than the king, more powerful than the sun and the storm and the wind. And as he stood there, he heard the sound of a hammer pounding a chisel into his side. And he thought to himself, what could be more powerful than me, the stone? And he looked down and he saw the figure of a stone cutter. We are the stone cutter. We tell ourselves, if only, and you can fill in the blank for yourself, if only, then everything would be okay. Then everything would be worthwhile. Then I would be happy. Then it would all make self, it, it would all make sense. If only. If only I had that degree, if only I had that spouse, if only I had that child, if only I had that job, if only I had that material item, if only I had that, then I'd be able to move mountains. I'd be able to fulfill my mission in life. I'd be able to make God happy. And that's what we all do. So we yearn to be the king and the cloud and the wind and the stone. Instead of doing what our Torah portion teaches us, 
to do, which is take off your shoes. God is asking us to feel the ground underneath us right now at this moment and to realize God picked this spot for me. This is where I am meant to be now. Our Parsha teaches us, take off your shoes and worry less about where you desire to go tomorrow and really check out where you are now. How this place where you are is actually worthy of your viewing it, of your appreciating it. Think to yourself, how can this moment be fully lived instead of trying to imagine what it would take to be fully alive? Rabbi Zelig Pliskin was quoting the Chavetz Chaim when he wrote that when we find ourselves yearning to be anything other than the stone cutter we are in this moment, when we want to be the king, the sun, or the storm cloud, when we are charged with performing the service of the stone cutter, a service that feels so beyond or beneath our capabilities, when we make promises to the Almighty about who we will be when things change, we need to remind ourselves, Ki hamakom asher ata omeid admas kodeshi, the spot where you are standing the spot where I am standing, where I am right now, this is holy. The exact situation in which I find myself now, this is my holy place. Moshe was told to remove his shoes, to remove his desire to be anywhere else but there. And in being commanded to take off his shoes, he was being told, don't focus on the fear that you have remembering the beatings of your people in Egypt. And don't focus on the apprehension you're going to have when you meet Paro and you're worried it's not going to go the way you want it to go. God says to Moshe, take off your shoes and be here now. This is your holy place. And the same for us. This is so important for us to internalize, to internalize, especially now, with all that we're facing. We feel we want to be somewhere else. We want to be at a different stage. We want to just want to get there or there or this. And it would then be okay. But God is whispering to us right now, this week in this Parsha, God is whispering to us, take off your shoes. Plant your feet into this ground. This is where I mean for you to be. So our Parsha really has a double meaning 
in describing the clothing that is worn by the Kohen and the Kohen Gadol, God is telling us that we are, each of us, all of us, Mamleches Kohanim, a kingdom of priests, Vagoy Kadosh, and a holy nation. <coughs> and we wear a sign upon ourselves that says that we too are Kodesh Lashem, holy to God. But God whispers at the same time, take off your shoes. Serve me, God says, from where you are right now. Especially now. Our portion teaches us that we are holy to God. We are a kingdom of barefoot stonecutters. Let me share with you one last piece, please. Because with our Parsha this week, the portion of Tetzaveh begins a momentous project. The Torah says in our Parsha, This is what you will do to make offerings on the altar that I have commanded you to build. Shnayim layom tamid, two offerings every single day, a continual offering every day. One offering in the morning, and a second offering in the afternoon. This project of offering a tamid, a continual daily offering, Every single day, no exception, every morning and every evening. That, in our Parsha, initiates over 800 years of uninterrupted daily sacrifice and offerings in the Mishkan and then continued in the first base Amigdash, the first temple in Jerusalem. Until the destruction of the first temple over 800 years later. Now, it's hard for us to understand today how that is a sophisticated and significant way of worshiping God through sacrifices and offerings. It's hard for us to relate to that. But the fact is that for over eight hundred years, this was the primary way we served God. The primary way we came close to God for over 800 years. Until the spiritual decline of the Jewish people in Israel towards the end of the first temple period. And then the Nevi'im, the prophets at that time, for example, the prophet Yirmiyo, Jeremiah the prophet, prophesied that the Beis Hamikdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. Now, when that prophecy came, just a few years in advance of it actually happening, 
there was a very difficult theological question that arose. How can God's house be destroyed? It's impossible. People didn't only not believe Yirmiyo Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet. It's not just that they didn't believe that he was a true prophet. They accused him of being a heretic. How could you even suggest that God's house, that God commanded to be built and God blessed this house? It's God's house. How could God's house be destroyed? It's as if you're saying that God himself God forbid, could be destroyed. It's, it's insane. And people did not believe him. And it's a good question. How is it possible for God's house to be destroyed? The answer is in our portion, our Torah portion this week. And the answer is extremely relevant to every single one of us today. The purpose of the sacrifices, which is the purpose of the Mishkan and the temple, because this was the exclusive location of the sacrifices, the purpose is announced at the very beginning of the project. In last week's Torah portion of Truma, God says, Va'asuli Mikdash, build for me a sanctuary, Vishokhanti Basokham, and I will dwell among you. In our portion this week, the Torah says, Vikidashti es Ohil Moe, God says, I will sanctify the tent of meeting, the Mishkan, this tabernacle, this sanctuary. And I will dwell amidst the children of Israel. But please hear me carefully. Had God said, I have sanctified the tent of meeting and I will dwell in it, the place that I sanctified, I will dwell in this house that you're building for me, then that question would be valid. It's God's house. How can it be destroyed? God sanctified it. God is dwelling there. How could it be destroyed? But that's not what God says. Rather, what God says is Vikidashti is Ohel Moed, and I will sanctify this tent of meeting not to be my home, God says, but rather Vashokhanti Basoch B'nei Israel, in order that I should dwell within you, the Jewish people, in order to create the closest, the deepest closeness between us and God. In last week's Torah portion, Va'asuli Migdash, make for me a sanctuary. God says, not that I'm going to dwell in the sanctuary. I'm not dwelling in the sanctuary, God says. V'shachanti b'socham, I am going to dwell within you. I'm going to dwell within you so that you can be better, so that you can live a proper life so that you, so that we can be closer to God 
connected to God. And it worked. It worked for over 800 years. With the sacrifices, it achieved this purpose of creating this closeness between man and God. And then it gradually deteriorated. Eventually, having the temple and offering sacrifices no longer served the goal of bringing us closer to God. The prophet describes the people would say, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I act. All I have to do is bring a sacrifice. Everything will be okay. So the temple was taken from us because it was no longer sanctified, because it was no longer serving its intended purpose of bringing us closer to God. And once it stopped serving its purpose of bringing us closer to God, it's just an empty building and can easily be destroyed. And in its place, the Talmud explains, prayer came to serve this role. And now, with prayer, not just in one location, but every synagogue, in every place, in every time, came to be its location. In the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, prayer is the language of the soul in conversation with God. The Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, was ultimately destroyed. The sacrifices were ultimately halted. But the goal of Vishachanti Besocham, God says, I will dwell within you, that goal never ceases. The vehicle has become for us prayer to bring us close, to remind us of who we are and what we should be. Prayer for us now is the language of the soul in conversation with God. So when we read the details of this week's Torah portion, and we read about these objects and these garments and these sacrifices, we remember what was and what we hope will be when the Mashiach comes. But we also remember that every time we stand to pray and take three steps forward and say the words, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you, God, directly, second person. Or informally, whenever or wherever we turn to God, in our own words or with no words, we are again entering that conversation with God. We are again bringing to life now God's promise to us in this week's Torah portion.
in the present. V'shochanti besok b'nei Yisrael. God promises, I will dwell amidst the Jewish people, though in a new evolved form. But God will come close to any one of us who turns to God in prayer. The vehicle of this relationship, of this intimacy, of this closeness, the vehicle of sacrifices in temple does not currently exist. But the purpose and the goal as expressed, as promised to us in our Torah portion applies equally today to us through prayer. The promise never halted, even though the vehicle changed. The promise of our Parsha continues through prayer. Through prayer, we can achieve Vishachanti Besocham. God will dwell within us. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.